Greetings, downhillers, free riders, dirt jumpers, slope stylers, and other progressive riders, including beginners, intermediate, and advanced. It's episode number 10 of the MTB Jumper podcast. I feature conversations with extraordinary riders, coaches, and industry leaders. We talk about skill development, bikes and gear, digging and building, strength and fitness, and much, much more. I'm your host, Norman Peterson. Thanks for tuning in. Today's guest is a collegiate downhill racer who's raced at the World Cup level, raced BMX, and has created one of the most prolific, helpful, and fun mountain biking channels on YouTube. We get into the realities of privateer racing at the amateur and pro levels, what makes for a hit YouTube video, and so much more. Please enjoy this laid-back, fun talk with the creator of Skills with Phil, Phil Metz. Maybe, though, the talent is your ability to practice really hard, <laughs> right? And and because some people, they just get on a bike and they're amazing, but those people are few and far between. Usually it's the dedication that does it. So so um, where'd you get started with um, with with biking in general? Ooh, uh, that, that could be a long story. Well, um, to back it up, I when I was very little, my parents used to put a uh, baby seat on the back of their bikes. Both my mom had one, my dad had one, and then they had a tandem. So I'd regularly be on a bike uh, riding around on the beach pass of uh, California. I wasn't riding at the time. And then eventually I got old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it was a three-person tandem, essentially. And then eventually I got my own bike and I rode behind them. And we came across a set of dirt jumps. Uh, this is in Huntington Beach, California. And these dirt, dirt jumps are called okay. Slater. And, you know, the like four-year-old like brain of Phil was like, wow, that's the coolest thing ever. So somehow cool. through the like... L- luck of the draw my parents were the kind of cool parents who're like oh he's he likes us let's bring him back with a bike tomorrow which they did and ended up crashing trying to do some of the jumps like even the tiny ones but <laughs> yeah somehow that result but you were hooked oh absolutely somehow that resulted in me getting a bmx bike uh like within the next few days that's great so serious cycling family in general yeah i mean yeah to an extent definitely my dad was never into racing or anything, but he rode a lot. Okay. Uh, so, so now you've got a BMX bike. So after that, uh, I started racing and I had a lot of success with that. Um, within the first uh, few years of me racing, I won a Grand Nationals uh, in ABA, which is one of the biggest titles you can uh, win. And I moved. Wow. Yeah. It, like I mean, the trophy was seven feet tall and here's like four foot, whatever, Phil, like... And it, it was just insane. Um, but, you know, like I moved around a ton just because of my dad's job. And so we ended up moving back to Connecticut and then I ended up moving to France where I, I, I was still racing BMX. But once I moved back to the States, I, and this is around 2003, so I was around uh, 13, 14 at the time, I okay. moved to New Hampshire and there aren't any BMX tracks in New Hampshire. I mean, there was, but they weren't of, like, national quality. Gotcha. And they were too far away. So I ended up just not riding for a bit. I took up – well, I was riding, but not racing. I started taking up a more BMX park, which was a, something I had dabbled with a little bit, but not seriously. Mm-hmm. And I ended up doing a few summers at Camp Woodward. And I really liked BMX – like park stuff, but it wasn't 
the kind of writing I really loved. However, when I was on, like at Camp Woodward, I saw a video of the Rampage, Red Bull Rampage, that is. And I was like, whoa, that is yeah. the craziest stuff ever. I would never do that. <laughs> And so this would be very this would be very early Red Bull Rampage then, yeah. Yeah, I I want to say it's it's got to be. It's it's got to be one of the I don't know specifically when it started, but um it's definitely around one of the first uh, Red Bull Rampages there were. Sure. And that kind of like got the bug in me. It was like, wow, mountain biking isn't this lame sport anymore that all BMXers thought mountain biking was. Mountain biking is actually kind of cool. If you look in the right areas, because um, like at that time, there's a big um, you know stipulation about mountain biking being lycra, cross country, and um, growing up riding BMX, I thought that was a totally like least cool thing ever. L- lot has changed since then, but you know, 14 year old me, that's the mindset I was in, and sure. so eventually, I. Was able to, well, my dad had a mountain bike somehow. I forgot how he ended up getting a mountain bike, but he had a mountain bike. And he was like, well, there's some trails near our house. Why don't we go try to ride these? And so those trails were Drummer Hill, which are now my local trails. And I ran on my ride, I ran into a bunch of downhill guys on downhill bikes and they let me follow them. And like, we got to the bottom of the trail and they're like, wow, you kept us kept up with us like on that bike which was like a 2003 <sighs> specialized enduro with uh, i think it had like bar ends on it and stuff uh-huh i had that bike that's not a bad bike at all man no that <laughs> at, at, at the time that bike was pretty uh sweet <laughs> looking back at it like oh <laughs> but yeah yeah <laughs> but yeah from there eventually uh they told us about downhill racing in Platakill Mountain and Mountain Creek Resort, which was uh, Diablo at the time. And that planted okay. the bug about mountain bike racing. And so event- uh-huh. eventually I was able to convince my parents to like, you know, get me a mountain bike, which was quite a big change from BMX because BMX, like you spend a thousand dollars on a bike and you have like the best freaking bike there is like on the planet in mountain biking if you spend a thousand dollars on a bike you have a bike that will get you down the hill yeah so (laughs) like the the price point had changed quite a bit and so we ended up buying a used bike off of ebay had no clue what size it was i just know it was a kona stinky supreme and the guy had used it a few times and hurt himself so he was just trying to get rid of it and I ended up riding that and had a lot of success just riding that bike. I think within my first year of racing downhill, I won the uh, Diablo Domination Series, which netted in me winning a frame. And so oh, nice. that that was kind of the beginning of racing for me. Mm-hmm. I, I skipped a lot because there's a lot of details that I could have gone into, but I don't want to drag that down too much. <laughs> Uh, so, so you you went from uh, from track BMX track racing to dabbling in in BMX park directly in into downhill. I mean, the only thing I can think of that that might be interesting is is if if there were you know anybody that was of substantial influence to you early on before your your downhilling days. 
uh, either in BMX or or mountain biking? Uh, I mean, there are a lot of influences, but I think I ha- there is a bunch of like small, like they're just small influences. Like um, I'm just going to sure. throw out a few names. Like when I was racing BMX, I would look up to guys like Todd Lyons, who was known as the wild man. He rode for... I think he rode for Huffy at the time and he was known for doing like backflips mid racing, like mid race. I was like, wow. So, you know, he could win a race, but he could also have fun during the race. And then there were riders like Uh (laughs) Brian Foster who were mainly dirt jumpers, but who could kick some butt on the race, uh, the race courses. And this is like back when BMX dirt jumping and BMX racing were a little bit more tight knit. Now they're two complete like separate entities. But yeah, like as far as BMX goes, like those are my, I'd say the two people who have still, I've, I've been looking up to ever since. Uh, now Todd Lines is the marketing director or product manager for SC. And it's kind of blows me away of what he's turned that company into because it's it was almost like bankrupt or it was bankrupt and he kind of helped uh, bring it back and now you see all these kids in uh, Philadelphia like riding SEs doing wheelies down the street. <sighs> Interesting, cool. Okay, that's uh, no, that's great. I just wanted to make sure we didn't leave out any any uh, crucial backstory there from from the BMXs. I guess the only other question about that would be to what extent. Um, did you uh, uh, acquire, you know, progressive skills during your BMX days, or were you just trying to go fast? Um, the, the thing that my parents really pushed on me was never, they never pushed me to train. They never pushed me to do anything except for have fun. And that's been a huge part of riding to me my whole life. Um you know, when I was at the BMX races or anywhere, I would just be playing in the dirt, just waiting for my next race. And I didn't really, um, you know, I didn't have a warm up. I didn't go to the gym or anything. To me, it was just fun. And I think that's something that I've always carried through with with me. Because to me, if I'm not having fun riding, then it's not worth doing. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Um, and that, like I was saying, that definitely transfers to the to your videos. Um, okay, so uh, let's get back into the to the world of the downhill racing scene. Yeah, so downhill racing was a uh, quite a big change because I was used to running, you know, I don't know, probably like forty plus psi on my tires when I raced BMX. So all of the technical sides or like bike setup side of mountain biking was probably the hardest thing to adapt to. I would do a lot of races where I had 45 PSI in my tire and I would like com- like jack up the compression to the maximum because to me, it's like, I-, I don't want this like sluggish thing. I want this like firm thing that I can pump with. And it-, it was funny. In some places, that ended up working really well. At Mount Creek, when it was dry, I did really well on that kind of setup. I think my <laughs> third race... I ended up winning the amateur category and I was only three seconds behind Aaron Chase. And this was my third or fourth race ever. That's awesome. And it was kind of like, that was a, I know that pissed a a few people off because a lot of people who had been on the scene were like, who the heck is this kid? Uh, And where do you come from? But there's definitely a few races where I got like accused of like cutting the course and stuff. It's like, no, I just, I, I don't know. Yeah. So I, I never had like a breakthrough result with 
downhill. I, I had a bunch of good ones uh, in 2008. Um, we're skipping ahead a few years. This would be my mm-hmm. last year of high school. I ended up uh, winning dual solemn national championships. And this was ag- uh-huh. against uh, Joey Schusler. He's one of, I don't know if he's still, but he was one of the creative directors or some uh, something like that at Yeti. He does a lot of their uh, filmography. Gotcha. And I was just this kid who was racing in like these cutoff jorts that were patched together in a, like a skate lid. And here's Joey in uh, like a full factory ride, like, you know, head to toe. <laughs> um, yeah. And it was, the race was at Mount Snow. So it was a local course to me. And like, it was it was just interesting because like, all the fans on the side were getting around me or um, getting stoked seeing this local shredder just like tearing it up on a dirt jumper against a, like uh, almost factory rider. I think dual slalom was the big the big turning point for me. Okay. Because that had a lot of BMX like elements to it, but it was mountain biking. Sure. So that's when people started to take notice of my skill set and one, uh, what I was capable of. And at the same time, that same year, I was still trying to figure out what I wanted to do in mountain biking. I, I still uh, wasn't fully set on racing. It was just something that I could do. Uh, Highland had uh, the Claymore Challenge, which was our slope style event. Okay. And they had two categories. They had like the pro FMB uh, level competition, and then they had the amateur competition. So obviously I wasn't, I was like 14 or no, at that at that time I was uh, seventeen. Um, I okay. I entered the amateur contest, and through the stuff that I learned at Camp Woodward, um, I ended up putting down a really solid run, including a backflip and a few other tricks. Um, I think in like my last run, I ended up trying a front flip. Uh, so I ended up I didn't land a front flip, but I ended up winning the competition uh, for the amateurs, and that's when people really started to take notice of whoa, this kid's got more than just uh, racing. He's got some tricks in him. Uh, so that was also the year I graduated from high school. I mean, I never had the like big success uh, right off the bat um, because I ended up uh, taking the next year off from racing completely. Because I graduated high school, it was time for me now to like go to college. So I ended up going to a culinary school since my grades our SAT scores weren't the best. And I stopped almost riding completely. It was at that point that I'd realized, like, because through internships and whatnot, that I really did not like the culinary field. And, you know, I toughed it out and tried to work with it. But because I wasn't riding my bike and whatnot, um, I was very unhappy. This is uh, 2010 we're jumping into. I ended up getting my uh, pro upgrade. And the funny thing is, so for USA Cycling, you have to like uh, show them your results to get your uh, license upgrade. Um, mm-hmm. I thought I'd have a really easy time getting my pro upgrade in uh, dual slalom because, you know, I had a junior national championship win. I, there's no other bigger result you can get. Um, I was denied in dual slalom but for some reason, my lackluster results in downhill were enough to get me uh, my pro upgrade. That's kind of funny. Weird. I wonder. I wonder if that's just was that maybe because of volume, number of races, or something? Or? I I have no idea. 
it it, it really <laughs> caught me by surprise. I was like, really? I mean, I expected to get shot down in downhill, but they approved that one. I I think I was so energized through like like working in the culinary field that that year by the end by the end of the that year I had my first pro win. Um and where would that have been? That was at Platakill Mountain and one of the other riders on the podium with me at that time was uh Richie Rude. Though he <laughs> was I I forget how much younger he is compared to me, but he was quite a few years younger than me at that time. Um and then so that was at the very end of fall and we went into the next year and I was just like, you know, I, I was like hungry for racing and through, I did like something crazy, like 27 races in 2011. Jeez. The, there were some weekends that I would do two or three races just because of how they worked out. Sure. And, wow. <laughs> That's impressive. <laughs> And that's the year that I really took to racing and things started to look up in the racing regards because by the, the be, at the beginning of the season, I would crash and burn. And someone just told me, I was like, hey, Phil, why don't you just kind of back it off and not try to go so hard out of the gate and just, you know, cruise down the hill, give it like an easy run and see how you do. So I did that and I got like second or third by not trying. I wonder if you've if you've explored that the topic of uh, relaxation and and staying calm and and doing a bit of a more laid back approach uh that is in in any of your videos. Uh you know what I have recently uh because I've always tried okay. to put a lot of thought into especially the skills videos. They um uh, yeah. My thoughts are always kind of jumbled in my head and I try to <laughs> strategically lay out a video so it makes sense in a like linear fashion but there's a lot of little details i can never figure out where to fit in and recently i've Mm -hmm. gone more to a i've tried out a little bit more of a vlog style video where it's just kind of more relaxed and the camera's almost always on so it's just capturing whatever i'm saying and i'm able to, to make I, I see what you mean. You, what you, what you what I meant was, have you specifically done a video about about writing uh, in a more relaxed way? But what you're saying is you're applying the overarching concept to the creation of the videos uh, in general. Yes, exactly. So no, no, I I totally get your question mm-hmm. now. Um, I guess I misunderstood mm-hmm. it. Um, no, I have. Well, no, that's it's awesome. It's awesome because it's a. Uh, <laughs> It answers two levels of the question, so go on. <laughs> um, no, that's actually something that I have tried to uh, script, and it's really hard to talk about just staying relaxed. Sure. Because I feel like you can just like say that, just stay relaxed. Um, but there's, <laughs> you know, like it's it's like when someone like tells you, oh, just act natural. It's like, uh, what is natural? Mm. You know, like <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Just be yourself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so let's let's get back to uh, it's 2011, 2012, and you're you're starting to kick ass via relaxation. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny. Like I I kept going with that approach. Just kind of I tuned it up a little bit where I knew how much I could push because what I was doing before I was just like getting redlined right out of the start gate, and then. I wouldn't mm. have the ability to concentrate when I was exerting myself so much because I was so tired. 
so I'd be making a lot of stupid little mistakes. Mm-hmm. So that was the biggest revelation to me. It's like, oh, I can do better by trying a little bit less hard, like going at 90% pace instead of 110 or whatever. And it's more efficient. And so at the end of that year, I had the most surprising result. Um, it's a result I never saw coming. I was at the national championships and it was one of the worst weathers we've seen. Like, like the, it was in, um, North Carolina, Beach Mountain, which has very, um, clay lake soil. So it just, it's peanut butter. It just snowballs when it gets stuck to your tire. Mm, greasy. Yeah. It, it's really bad. And it, well, it would get so bad that like the snow or not the snow, the clay would pack up so much that it would rub the, um, the arch of your fork and you'd have to stop during practice to like rub it off. But wet conditions were never favorable to me, but somehow at that race, I was able to pull off a fifth and the, nice. the people who are, who I was behind were riders like Aaron Gwynn, Mitro Pilato, Duncan Riffle and Logan Bingley. Hmm. I was the only pr- excellent privateer on the podium at that point. And I was like, wow, this this is insane. And that was the year I was like, man, like this racing thing is like really going to work out. I'm, you know, you know, I'm going to like, that was like the last race of the season. Like I'm going to go home and Trek or somebody is going to be calling me or something. Like, obviously I just did that. Well, I'm like (laughs) the only one who's not uh, sponsored up here. That's, you know, someone's going to want me. And that was the most eye opening experiences ever. Cause no one cared. And I tried to apply for a sponsorship and whatnot, and I had a really difficult time. And the next year, I ended up getting on a local team. Uh, we had a part hookup with Yeti and, you know, still paying for bikes, but um, not like a, not retail costs, obviously. And my first two uh, rides of the year, I podium behind Justin Leov and Aaron Gwynn at the Pro GRTs. And everyone's like, damn, like Phil's on a tear. And I I thought so too. I was like, wow, this is so cool. And all the local races, I was doing well. And this is the first year. I was like, wow, I might actually be good enough to compete at a World Cup. And I was planning on doing, um, I think it must have been, yeah, it must have been Wyndham. Wyndham or Mount St. Anne. And the... A few weeks before that, I broke my collarbone. Oh. I've never broken a bone in my life. And I was like, oh, man, this sucks. But, you know, I can be back on my bike before the end of the season. I can probably do one World Cup with the UCI points that I earned from national championships. Um, you, ne- you need, well, at the time, you needed 20 UCI points to race a World Cup. Or you could petition uh, to race for the uh, Federation. There's a bit of uh, politics that go into it. But anyway, so I healed up and was able to go to Javier, Norway. At that race, I ended up breaking my hand in practice. My, like, oh, jeez. I was like, ah, this really sucks. Like, you know, you came all the way over here for this. and um, But that was the end of the season, so racing was pretty much done for me. So I just kind of hung low and I was able to secure a pretty good sponsorship for the next year because of my uh, race results from early in the season. I was actually at the time, cool. I, 
I got on board with uh, Evil. They had the Evil Vengeance store at the time. They had a new carbon downhill frame, and I was like super, super excited because um, this was the first time I'd ever gotten anything uh, for free. And that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I was, I was so stoked. Like I, I was like, wow, it's things are finally looking up. Well, right oh. before the first big race of the season, I bre- break my hand again. Ugh. So that was three broken bones in one year. And that was at the point that I was like, is this worth it? Right. Um, because once like, once I came back and got on my bike after th- uh, three consecutive injuries, I I wasn't riding the way I used to ride. And I was a little bit more tentative. My race results were just okay. And so when I went to go apply for sponsorship the next year, well, th- there's there's some more things that I'm just going to leave out. I had some uh, issues uh, contacting the owner of uh, Evil. They they were having some issues with their frames cracking. And my frame was cracked mm-hmm. and I couldn't get a replacement fl- frame. So um, mm-hmm. I did like a few races on a cracked frame. And I went to go do sponsorship stuff and everything just fell through. No, no, nobody wanted me. Um, and that was like this this really sucks because you know i i thought what year would this have been this is oh yeah i should have mentioned this is 2013 okay and that was also the same year that I had gotten a gopro and did a few chest um cam runs from uh, highland and i had spent a lot of time on the internet you know i i i kind of give the internet as like being like the assist or giving me the assist because i sp- spent i grew up on the internet basically sure and i was like wow there's kind of a lack of good like quality videos of like highlands trails they have all these good trails but no one knows about them and so you know i'm pretty smart i i'd like to think i was like wow like in these titles of these videos are not very descriptive you can't even find them so i just spent one day going to highland um and i did like most of the trails there and I was able to get m- most of my videos on the front page of the YouTube search results when you'd search Highland because I like you know I paid attention to SEO. I mean I had no clue what it was. I went and found out that there was this thing called SEO that you needed to use like keywords and descriptive like things to make sure that hmm. your videos would end up in the search results. Sure, and that's essentially how my YouTube channel got started at the beginning i got my initial first like thousand subscribers or so because i started to understand how youtube worked and i realized other people weren't putting in the effort yep that's a that is a way to uh to to get ahead on the internet is just pay attention and and figure out where other people are are making the mistake or figure out where to be strong it's kind of a great equalizer if you if you take care of business and work hard exactly and so going into the um winter of 2013 2014 i didn't have any sponsorship and i was like well i don't really have a plan right now i don't want to uh go work in a restaurant again uh, but hmm. i i wasn't sure what i was going to do so i ended up um applying to a school that i knew i could get a decent scholarship for for collegiate cycling I was like, I'll I'll cash in uh-huh. on my racing career, and 
I'll go to school, uh, get a degree, and you know, we'll, we'll, I'll I'll have four years to kind of figure out what the heck I'm doing with my life. Sure. One of the things that that a, a lot of people are curious about is how how did you finance your racing? You know, the couple of years that you did that you did race uh, prior to that. How were you financing it? That, that's a great question, and I think um, a lot of people are going to be disappointed. Um, cause I've, I've had this, this conversation with a lot of other professional athletes in different sports. Um, my parents, uh-huh. um, they, they, they essentially were super supportive in what I did. And so they allowed me to stay, you know, in their house and I was able to, mm-hmm. you know, work some side jobs here and there and like make enough like money back from winning races here and there to essentially fund what I was doing. Uh, okay. Yeah, I mean that's that's a I think a more common uh answer than than one might imagine. A lot of people, a lot of of racers get help from their parents when they're starting out. So. Yeah, I mean the, I I couldn't go on a tangent about that cuz I think one of the things that a lot of people um <laughs> I I get that question a lot on my YouTube channel is like, "Hey Phil, how do you go pro?" And I right. I would love to say, "Yeah, you just need to put in a lot of hard work and put your head down." and just train and you'll become a pro. But the sad reality is you need to have the luxury of having the free time and resources to be able to do that. Cause most of the like pros that you look at, um, you know, they, they've had some form of, uh, freedom to be able to do that. I think there's a video out there of, um, uh, Jordy Lunn, uh, his, his father, uh, like bought a, a, a loader and stuff so that he could build monster jumps. Uh, on his father's property, you know, just as a kind of extreme example. <laughs> anyway, uh, okay, so that that's that's cool. That answers that, and I just wanted to kind of make sure that that we were caught up with that. So we're at 2014. Yep, you're looking at at going to school. Yeah. So I just to cut to the chase. I I didn't race that year. That from February or whatever 2014 until. Uh, September 2014. I didn't race at all, but okay. I started going to a school called Leeds McCray College in the fall of 2014. Now, keep in mind, I'm coming into school as a 24-year-old, so I'm a little bit older than the rest of the students there. Um, but I'm sure. I'm about the same age as some of the like super seniors who are like graduating, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. and so I I knew some of them from back when I used to, well, from my racing days. And there's so, like, obviously a lot of people had heard of me, but I, I, I came into school and I didn't have a downhill bike. So um, right before we went to school, my mom gave me a birthday gift of, we uh, ended up getting a discounted specialized status that was like, you know, not built up with the best parts, but it was a pretty damn good affordable downhill bike. And I was able to cool. uh, switch out a few parts with some stuff I had left over. And it was a really nice bike uh, by the time I had built it up. But it was still a, you know, a specialized status, which is regarded as pretty cheap bike. And I went into collegiate racing with really uncertain expectations. I was like, okay, well, I'll race for, I'll do collegiate racing. But then once like summer comes, I'm not going to race. Uh, I'm not going to be racing. I'm just going to be doing, I don't know what. We get to collegiate nationals, which is one of the coolest okay. events I've ever done. And you have riders like Walker Shaw, Shane Leslie, uh, Dakota Norton, and a bunch of mm. you know 
rippers. It, so at collegiate nationals, I ended up winning not only downhill, but I also won dual solemn. And I won downhill by a large margin. And keep in mind, Shane Leslie <laughs> uh, was like one of the up and coming like best pros at the time. So yeah, the fact that I not just beat him, but beat him by a you know a four second margin or so was quite a jeez. Like, a lot of people were like, "What the heck?" It was a two minute course, so it wasn't like there was a lot of time to be found. Yeah, and just just for I do have listeners that aren't downhill people um, and may not may not be hip to to what four seconds means in a downhill race, but normally you're looking at like tenths or maybe like one like two seconds down to tenths would be a more normal span between between first and second place. Yes. Yep. Exactly. And so you were kicking ass in collegiate downhill. Yeah, and slope style, or uh, or rather. Uh, dual Solemn. Sorry. Dual Solemn, yeah. Okay. And so that race was kind of uh, another changing point for me. I was like, I maybe should reconsider my thoughts on throwing in the towels for racing. Sure. Um, and I totally lucked out with this one. But one of my Facebook friends who I had coached their sons during the uh, – when I was writing for Evil, I did a little coaching ses- session for them. It was the first official kind of skills with Phil. He contacted me. I was like, hey, we can help you out next year with a bike because he owns uh, several bike shops. He's like, we'll, nice. we will loan you a bike. And all I'm asking for you is to like travel the country and help mentor my kids. I'm like, heck yeah. Like, uh, you know, like <laughs> I don't have to pay for anything. Like I, I got really lucky with that. That. I'm sorry. Who was who was this again? Uh, th- so this was my friend. So I should give them a name. So this is uh, yeah. Steve Kahn, the owner of Danny Cycles. It's a series of okay. bike shops out out of the like New York City metro area. Oh, okay. All right. And cool. So I came into 2015. I was like, well, I guess I'm racing this year, and <laughs> I didn't quite know what to expect. But at the first race at Mountain Creek, I ended up getting, I think it was a sixth, um, just off the podium. And people were like, where the heck has Phil been? Because he just smoked a lot of people and found himself (laughs) like top 10 at a national. And I haven't heard about him racing Mm -hmm. in a long time. I think a big determining factor of how your season is going to go is based off the first race you do. And that lit a fire under me, not necessarily to train or anything, but it just like um, the psychological side of it. It was just, I was really amped to go ride and race. And that season, I I had a lot of pretty spectacular um, race attempts. Like there, I'm trying to figure out how to um, phrase this because there's a lot of races where I was definitely the person a lot of people were eyeing up because of some of the things I I was doing. And then in my race run, I would crash and burn. Um, one of those, one of, one of the things that uh, was national champs in 2015, there was uh, this one gap. Uh, this is in Mammoth. And there's this uh, one super sketchy area. They called this the Widowmaker. 
and it was just like this nasty like uh section with rocks all over the place you had to do like this double drop and it was like it was just really awkward but there was like a big compression and you could potentially well you could double the the double drop but I had noticed there was some like sketchy rocks, but past the sketchy rocks, like 30 feet out, there was a embanking that you could potentially uh, use as a hip. If you were to nail the turn before the sketchy section perfectly and like get as much preload as possible from that compression. So I, w- I would say this is kind of like Phil's uh, BMX street experience kind of coming into play. Just looking at weird, sure. weird line gaps that I would do when I rode BMX. Yeah, and you saw this in in practice or or uh, pre race walkthrough or something. Exactly, and like this was something that was you know everyone kind of looked at it, but it was like, nah, that's not doable. And I just had too many issues with the line that everyone else was taking. I was like, I've I was never so scared, but I hiked up to the. Um, I hiked back up after like eyeing it up and kind of like feeling it out thinking, I think I can do this. And I was trembling. Mm-hmm. That usually doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was trembling at the top and, you know, my breathing got really shallow, but I was like, we're going to do this. And <laughs> I, yeah, I came into that section and nailed it perfectly. And everyone looking around was like, what the heck did we just see? Um, what? <laughs> To put it into, uh, I guess, a little bit better perspective, um, the next one over the next few runs, I must have done it right in front of Aaron Gwynn, who was also he must have heard about it, obviously, because those kind of things um, get passed along the grapevine really quickly in racing. Sure, I did that gap right in front of him, and he came down to the bottom, and he like he told me something along the lines like, "That was the bossest thing I've ever seen." cool <laughs> and he never he didn't touch it he was too scared to, well i don't know if he was too scared or if he's just a smart racer right. and knew he didn't need to take that kind of risk <laughs> sure sure <laughs> yeah you'd spent some time gearing up for it and were able to make it happen but <laughs> he was be- he was better off and i see because okay so the 2015 national championships at mammoth bike park from the archives um this is this is uh, one of your videos, and and it's actually really exciting to watch. And I see you took twelfth in that in that race, and Gwyn took first. Yeah, so I ended up crashing in my. Uh, yeah, I uh, d- d- something happened in my race run there. I think I crashed and flatted, um, and still getting twelfth with a crash and a flat at national championships is, you know, I I was pretty happy with That's that. That's incredible, all, all things considered. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's pretty amazing. <laughs> okay. Anyway, um, so at that point, I knew I was riding better than ever. I went into um, I think yeah, it was the snowshoe, uh, national, not national championship, and national, and I ended up getting second there, right behind Nico Molali, and that was kind of unexpected because I didn't really like that course. Um, and then the one of the next few within the next few weeks, I competed in another World Cup, which was the Wyndham World Cup. This was the first 
my second World Cup ever, but the first one I had done since I broke my hand. Uh, I should back up a little bit and mention that one of the things, like, because of my broken hand, one of the demons I wanted to conquer was I wanted to prove to myself to see if I was just good enough to qualify for a World Cup. I didn't care what place I got. I just wanted to make the main event. So I went into Wyndham thinking, okay, if I get a top 60, I would be stoked. I, I would be uh, beyond yeah. stoked. Um, and so through riding that weekend, I knew I was on a pretty good pace, um, but I really didn't know what to expect. And so come qualifying, I going back to the whole taking it easy um, mentality that I learned um, from 2011, I just took it pretty easy, like not easy where um, I'm on a leisurely ride, but just enough that I knew I wasn't going to make any stupid mistakes. And I was like, I was one of the last riders to go down and I came down and I was in the 23rd spot. Wow. That's incredible. And it didn't hit me how many, at the beginning. Out of out of how many riders? Um, there's, there, there had to be like around 150. And those World Cup. All those World Cup races attract some monsters. Yeah, absolutely. And that that like right there, Very cool. I had accomplished my at the time that was my biggest goal. Um, it was kind of a new recent biggest goal, but it was something that had been lingering in my mind. Like, was I good? Like, how would I stack up at a World Cup level? Um, <laughs> and then in my race run, I ended up crashing. Um, to no surprise, but the cool thing is I still have some uh, quantifiable data from that is in between in between the first split and the second split, uh, what they call uh, sector two, I end up having the eighth mm-hmm. fastest time uh, in front of, uh, G- not Greg Menard, uh, G. Atherton. Mm. Wow. And I was like, whoa, I, I can't believe <laughs> that that's possible. And um. Uh, that you can see that if you go to I think it's like Dirt TV or Dirt um, Mag or something, they have all like the science or breakdowns from that race, and it, it just kind of blows my mind. But yeah, cool. After I did that, I'd accomplished everything I wanted. So kind of my like stokeness for racing just like kind of went out the window. I was just like, cool, that was fun. Um, yeah. What next? In the meantime, back in the spring, I had done, you know, a silly little video about, uh, you know, I was in between races, so I made a silly little video. I was like, um, I, we're going to see if I can uh, make a video, uh, instructional video on uh, teaching people how to manual. So at the same time, all of that racing stuff was happen- happening, I had this YouTube channel that was starting to grow because I come up with the silly name Skills with Phil. Um I would start going to races and people knew me as Skills with Phil. They didn't know me as the racer Phil. They knew me as Skills with Phil, which was (laughs) – that seemed totally backwards to me because, like, here I am. I just, you know, kind of kicked ass in a World Cup, but I'm known for making an instructional video. (laughs) And one instructional video. Yeah, I I think I should add I made a a bunny hop tutorial as well after that. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> two yeah. instructional videos <laughs> that's still that's still kind of amazing you know i mean anyway 
<laughs> so it was at that point that like my I I I knew what it took to be uh competitive at the World Cup level and yeah even with all that success and all that kind of stuff I, you know I I was not making any money I was just doing it for the love love of the sport and uh even after all those results I wasn't able to get any um you know sponsor to like really pay the bills or anything so I really had to I really started thinking about it and I realized that my passion had shifted from racing to helping other people and making videos. Sure. And 2016, uh, that year was a very weird year for me because I did a lot of racing, but my heart wasn't in it. All I could think about is at the end of every race, it was like, all right, can I go like get some space to go make a video now? <laughs> and yeah. It was at the end of 2016 I just realized that I my passion for racing had once again kind of um you know just disappeared. I don't know if that's temporarily or like permanently, but now I have this whole new thing that's changed my life. Because I think it was I think it was the uh spring of 2016 when I was down in North Carolina, I ended up you know, my channel was growing at that point. I think I had about 10,000 subscribers, which to me was a huge deal because I'd worked so hard to get those. I um, yeah. I reached out to another YouTuber that's seen growing, uh, you know, you may know of, Seth Bikax. Okay. Um, I'll put that in, the sh- in show notes. Um, he's now the biggest, uh, biggest individual uh, mountain bike YouTuber. Okay. Um and at the time I like I I had gone to Florida before for spring break to go riding cuz there's actually some interesting riding out there. It's not like big mountain stuff, but there's a place that's got some cool features because the guy from Ray's Mountain Bike Park lives in that area and has done a lot of building. I reached out to him. I was like, "Hey, uh I'm going down to Santos. I know that's not too too far from where you are in Florida." Uh, would you like to meet up and, you know, uh, maybe shoot a few videos? And that was probably one of the best decisions I've ever made because we unintentionally made the first mountain bike YouTube collaboration. That's uh, what you call it huh. when two YouTube channels come together to make a series of videos or one video. And it's uh, it's it's a very important thing on YouTube platform. Okay. But at that time, like, there was a bunch of people making YouTube videos, but there weren't any mountain bike YouTube channels. And I think um, both of us kind of started pioneering the the idea of a mountain bike YouTube channel. Um, there was also uh, Global Mountain Bike Network uh, was popping up onto that scene at the same time. They, sure. they weren't as popular as they are now, but they were definitely, uh, right. they were kicking ass. Um, yeah, it was at, yeah, it was really at that moment that things really shifted for me and I started putting all my eggs into YouTube basket versus the racing basket. Cause that to me, that it seemed like there was a lot more potential to be had, um, even as a career in way to actually support my writing or just support what I do with making YouTube videos. Mm-hmm. And I had a wealth of knowledge from my years racing 
BMX and mountain biking that not many people had. I knew I was very, very lucky in that regard. And not only that, but I love bikes and I love teaching new people or teaching people new skills. But I was a bit, I'm, I'm not, I have never been formally trained on how to teach. It's just, I was always looking for videos on how to do like a bunny hop. Um, because I was interested more in the physics behind it of what was actually happening. And there wasn't any good videos about that. So that's why I made hmm. the bunny hop tutorial. Cool. You've got, you've got videos, you know, with a, a third of a million views and, and, um, 120,000 subscribers or so. So, so it's a pretty serious channel you got going there. Um, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. I, I mean, over the time that I've been making YouTube videos, I definitely have changed my, who I was initially making videos for. I initially went into it thinking I was making videos for more advanced, uh, specifically more advanced level riders. Yeah. And as I went on, I realized there is more demand for, I guess, lower end skills or like some more beginners, uh, skills. Um, okay. And so that's definitely changed my narrative and it's also changed how I look at things because there's definitely this mindset as a racer that nothing else besides racing, like everything outside like racing doesn't really matter. Um, I, I never really subscribed to that mindset, but if you, if you get to know a lot of racers pretty uh, closely, you'll definitely see they're pretty myopic in how they view uh, the mountain bike industry. Mm-hmm. And yes, I, <laughs> I I realized that, you know, I I was having more fun interacting with everybody, people who weren't racing and just like showing them some things that were, I guess, pretty obvious on the racing scene, but weren't so obvious if you didn't r- like ride your bike every day. Yeah. And that really got me excited about what I was doing because I was having a meaningful impact on people's lives. I would go places and people would say, Hey, your videos have really improved my riding. Um, you know, your videos inspire me. And I'd never gotten that from racing. And like, that's essentially what I wanted to do was racing. Cause my motto was like, you know, if I wasn't going fast, I had to at least put on a show. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, establishing your narrative is a big part of of um, uh, of creating a channel that's gonna, you know, knowing who you're who you're working for, basically, right? Who you're creating content for is uh, a powerful thing, and and clearly you've you've had some success with it. I mean, um, so so maybe we can take a minute to um, to focus on a couple of your more popular. Uh, well, all your videos are popular. I mean, anybody who can consistently get over 30,000 views on a YouTube video is doing very well, But and you do, clearly. Anyway, um, I'm just looking at um, eight super simple bike tricks, half a million views. <laughs> I wonder if that's the listicle law kicking in, you know, like if you make a list. I don't know if you've heard that, but like when bloggers make lists, you know, 10 simple, et cetera, right? Um, that, 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 that was totally a listicle. Uh, five minutes, fifty-one seconds long, and I will put it in sh- a link to it in show notes. But, but um, what uh, 
what inspired you to do a multitude of uh, like you know eight tricks in in five minutes <laughs> uh well to me i feel like it's really important to be having fun on a bike so you 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 have like the skills of like you know how to ride off camber and you know that kind of stuff how to corner but people those things while they do make your riding more fun the things that are fun are like what you do in the parking lot like what what can you do with a bike and empty parking lot and i really the idea with it is like i really want to give people a way to have fun with just their bike and like kind of show people that they 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 are allowed to be creative and think outside the box even though they're not riding a bmx bike it's still something that can be used uh, for you know enjoyment like you know you don't have to ride a bike the way uh it's intended you sure. can do other things that you like nobody ever expected and so that was my way of really trying to get kids really stoked on riding and like showing the potential of what you can do with a bike with not a lot of things. Cool. I'm actually watching it as we speak. (laughs) I'm watching, I'm listening to the endo section right now. (laughs) It's pretty cool. And it's kind of amazing how much you can get into five minutes. I mean, I'm only in, you know, the first third of this video and, and you've already done, uh, three tricks. We're at the endo turn now. Um, it's awesome. I'm going to watch that video a lot. Actually, there's a couple of things in there I could learn. Uh, anyway, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, cool. Happy to so, hear that. Um, well, on that same kind of kind of track, I mean, just out of curiosity, in terms of of strategy, what keeps you from just doing a bunch of listicle stuff, or from going through and kind of optimizing more and looking at, you know, any any videos you've done with that get the like six beginner. Oh, interesting. Another listicle, six beginner mountain bike skills. Uh, a quarter of a million views you know um do you see where i'm going with that like like why don't you just do a ton of those and get yeah no, <laughs> no that, that that's a really good question um and the simple answer is i mean those if somebody i subscribe to just made a bunch of videos and they were all listicles i would get annoyed pretty quickly because like like I, I, I would be able to see through sure. it and know what they were doing. And so like I I I don't want to annoy anyone. I, I, I wanna if it's if it's becoming monotonous or not interesting, I don't want to do it because yeah. I know other people don't want to watch it. That being said, um some of the videos I always thought like were really beneficial and some of the skills I think a lot of people need to learn how to do are some of the videos that do the worst. It's often counterintuitive knowing what uh, people want to see and versus what they what they need to see. So, yeah, yeah, and that's one of the things where I've definitely um, had to kind of stray away from in some ways. Of you know, there's a lot of things that people should probably learn, but they don't, and they don't really. Yeah, can you can you give me an example? Can you give us an example of of one of the videos that you wish had done better because because valuable skill <laughs> um def- so a few of them are pumping and pumping line choice and berms i think berms might have actually done pretty okay. well but uh, maybe it was flat turns that didn't do too well i mm. i think those are you know three they're they're related skills all of them kind of bleed into uh the other in a lot of different ways and 
Hmm. I tried to like get some excitement for berms by showing like a montage of like me just roosting a bunch of different kind of turns, flat turns, berms, and to get people excited to watch them. But it just it mm-hmm. it did okay. Um, still, people want to know how to do like, the tricks are flashy. They want to know how to do like the manuals, the wheelies, the um, the equal tricks. So it's definitely finding so- that balance of making things that people are interested in and fitting into stuff people should need need to know i've definitely changed um my the way i do things i'll kind of sprinkle the things that people should like really need to know into the videos that people think they want to know (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's that's awesome sort of uh yeah, well, here here's the here's the the fun stuff, but here's some medicine to go with it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. By the way, Drummer Hill Berm Roosts, which is anyone looking at at um, the skills with Phil. Um, That's one of my old YouTube videos. Channel, really old videos. It's third from. It's the third video that's on this channel, um, but it's really cool. It's beautifully shot. And it's it's only a minute long. You're jumping into out of berms into berms roosting. It's it's uh, it's really cool. You know, I like one of the things that makes me crazy. If you watch um, a lot of the stuff on uh, on Facebook right now that amateurs post of jumping in particular, you'll see where they've they've done slow mo at I don't know what percentage of speed, but it looks like it's about two percent. And it's like, we don't need to see you hanging in the air for 30 seconds on a jump that took less than a second to <laughs> blow through, right? And your your um, timing, your, your, your slow-mo timing is really good. It's totally, it's right where it should be, right? It's not excruciating and useless. It's, 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 it's very, very nicely timed. So anyway, oh, thank you. I, something. I've, I've definitely put some thought into it. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I'm I'm sure it's hard for some people to resist that tendency to slow, you know, show you now you get to watch every, you know, <laughs> every tiny minutia detail of me doing this one little jump and but it's just not necessary. Ugh. That in vertical, you know, holding the phone <laughs> vertically. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, you've got some great production going on. So, and in fact, maybe we can get into that a little bit. Like, are you doing your video, your production um uh, filming that is all on your own absolutely um every once in a while i'll have somebody like hold a camera for me or but it's usually like they're they're the tripod i'm like i'll frame it and like listen hold the camera don't move i'll come back um yeah. <laughs> interesting <laughs> you don't want them panning or or composing or anything like that it, it, yeah it's so it's so hard because um one of the things i did is like when i was trying to build my youtube channel i spent a crap ton of time uh, getting into filming and or just like understanding how camera works, how uh, these different elements of filming the different angles like uh, make for a better um, better quality video. And uh, so I, I wouldn't call myself a filmmaker, but I definitely learned quite a bit of filmmaking in the process. And I ended up subscribing to a ton of like filmmaking uh, YouTube channels and some of them, which I still yeah. subscribe to now. And it, it's just like some, it's a interest that I gained um, 
out of necessity in some ways. Mm. But uh, kind of like uh, what you have to do, like when you uh, told me about this podcast, you're like, all right, so uh, set the uh, microphone like three to six inches away from your mouth, blah, blah, blah. Like these are all things like I, I was like, you know, looking up on the internet, just trying to figure out how to get the best quality out of everything I had. Yeah. Well, it shows. I mean, I'm like, for example, right now I'm looking at this video you've got with um, Jeff Lenoski. I don't know, maybe you've got more than one of those, but anyway, I'll put that in show notes. It's got, uh, you're out riding trail with Jeff Lenoski, which is really And cool Nate Hills, by the itself, way. But, and Nate Hills, yeah. Uh, and just looking at the video in general, I mean, you're, do- you're doing some great work. I mean, looking at the, like the chess cam from that 2015 um, Nationals race, it's like, oh God, it's a, you know, like... Like, okay, I got to take a break and breathe for a minute because it's so jiggly. But. Yeah. <laughs> uh. And I'm sure chess, chess cam is problematic um, or can be, but it has its place, I'm sure. But um, any, anyway, no, your stuff looks really great and you can really tell that you put effort into, uh, you know, into making sure that it's not only instructive, but entertaining. You know, I like to say, people will say, hey man, can you shoot? Because I, I do you know, my own videos for fun on the trail or whatever. And people are like, can you shoot me, you know, doing, you know, this run? And it's like, well, yeah. Are you willing to do it 16 times? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Because to make it look like one run that's entertaining and fun to look at, you have to shoot every meaningful hit from both directions at least. Right. It's yes. All that stuff. (laughs) So so, uh, how long does it take you to produce? Say, I'm going to look at some times here. Oh, it doesn't. Oh, yeah, it does. 20 minutes. Jeez. Oh, these are long videos. You're averaging, say, over seven minutes or eight minutes. And uh, yes. How long does it take you to put together a 15 minute video? For well, example? you know what? Um, it really depends on the video. So those okay. um, the last videos you're talking about are uh, from a trip that I did with a friend. And we I due to like the uh, nature of YouTube, you're allowed to change the format of your videos um sure and it's really interesting because it gives you some time to try something that you didn't know you might like doing or not and so those last few videos are more of a um i don't want to call them a vlog but i guess that's kind of what they are in some ways because i'm not really talking telling you what i'm eating but it's more of like your fly on the wall and like this is my day out on the trails so a video like that is actually pretty quick because um it has a linear narrative and you know you drop it in on your timeline and the thing that slows you down is the exporting the rendering and the uploading sure um the sure the the other like as far as like coming up with a story for that like the story writes itself because it's your day out on the trail so you don't have to rearrange anything you just um, you know, you're not trying to like present somebody you're not. You're trying to be truthful. So, you know, you just cut out all this stuff that loses your attention. Like, okay, that's another flat section of trail. It's not particularly interesting. Okay, another few minutes, delete. Um, like, And then you end up focusing more on uh, talking. However, if we're going to talk about some of the skills videos, um, my <laughs> th- some of those videos can take forever. Because, right. remember, I don't have any formal uh, training when it comes to uh, teaching people how to do things. So, I 
I want to make sure I'm, I'm speaking, I'm saying things that make sense to people uh, who are just getting into the sport and trying to use terms that are mm. widely understood and trying to put things into most simple terms as possible. But at the same time, be interesting because if you're boring, people aren't going to watch. So some of those, like some of my early videos would almost take two weeks. <laughs> um, now now I can probably get that process down to a few days, but it, it, there's definitely a lot of time that goes into it. I think um, I kind of calculated really quickly. It would take about 36 hours start to finish from scripting to uh, uploading to YouTube and hitting the like go live button for a video to be ready. Mm, yeah. Yeah, you're you're putting a lot of thought into the big picture of your videos and I think anybody could learn uh, at just about any level could learn something from your your channel. It's good stuff, man. Good good work. Oh, thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> so, are you what's the plan? Are you just going to are you going to keep doing what you're doing? I mean, do you have anything coming down the pipe that we should be aware of or Well, that, that's uh that's kind of uh that's going to be what I'm figuring out this year because I'm going into my last year of uh college. And okay, I'm going for business and marketing, but I feel like I've largely learned a lot of those things just by doing YouTube. Um, there's definitely mm -hmm. a lot of things that I've learned at school, but I feel like the majority of the stuff is kind of like, oh yeah, I, that makes sense because that's what I'm doing on YouTube already. But so when I graduate, my goal is to be a full-time YouTuber initially, but I see that more as a stepping stone goal. Um, it's probably not something that I'll ever let go of until YouTube crumbles. But <laughs> uh, what I really want to do is open up my own bike park. Uh, not in the sense of like owning my own mountain, but more of a, more of a, it's hard to say. Like I, there's a bunch of different um, versions of this idea that I have in my mind. Like maybe, go with like a small little warehouse and franchise it where you have a um, kind of more of like a uh, indoor little bike park that you use, you maximize the use of the space and create something really cool, a facility where you can teach people how to do skills and you do that all across the country. Or maybe it's one central location where you have uh, places where people can stay. Um, it, like that's really, really simplifying all the ideas I have in my head because, like, I could go on a whole podcast about that probably. Yeah. Because I mean, like, I guess the last thing I want to do is own and operate in a chairlift because I see those as like really like expensive wastes of money. Like, I think most people yeah, are yeah. fine without a chairlift, and there's so much more potential you can do without um a mountain resort like. So that, that's why I use the term sure. bike park lightly. Yep, but you'll figure it out. <laughs> I'm convinced of that. Eventually. <laughs> but you're done racing, yes? Um, I still have one year left of collegiate racing. Uh, oh, okay. So I, cool. I, I at least need to fulfill that obligation. But as far as racing mm -hmm. racing, I, I don't th think it's unforeseeable that I do more races, but a racing career is no longer my focus. Gotcha. That's great, man. The only other thing I can think of is is if you have any anybody you want to mention. I mean, we got to we got a glimpse there in one of those videos of Jeff Lenoski. Is there anybody else you you might want to 
to mention that's helped out or had an influence or impact along the way or even currently? I mean, you could make a whole list of people who have been influential, but right now, um, obviously this is the most like obvious one, but my mom and my dad, unfortunately it's just my mom at this point. Um, my dad passed away, Mm. but I'm sorry. So they have definitely big been the biggest help, but additional to that, it's, um, I don't like, it's so hard because there's so many people I can mention. I would feel bad mentioning names and leaving other people out, but, uh, yep. Yep. Like, <laughs> you know, I talk with uh Seth by quite a bit and we brainstorm ideas. I, you know, even my girlfriend, um, she's been a huge help in like helping me see the potential of what I'm doing. Uh, cause it's easy to get down on yourself when, you know, maybe a video isn't doing as well as you expected, or, you know, you're reading some of the nasty comments and, um, you, you have mm. someone that's a little bit more removed from the area who can kind of be like, no, nah, you know, like who cares? Like there's a million other people who, uh, are stoked on your videos. And at this point I'm trying to help her, uh, or plant the bug in her to, uh, get her YouTube channel up and running a little bit more. She she also rides bikes, cool. so. That's great, man. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, as far as, I mean, this, this show is, is fairly new, so I haven't had to really deal with haters uh, as of yet, although I'm told it's it's inevitable. And the advice is always just don't, you know, just don't pay any attention to them. But it can be difficult, and I'm sure Seth has helped with that. He's probably seen his share of haters. <laughs> One of the things that I heard is like, once you have haters, that means you've made it because you, so it's hard to look at it that way, but that's the best way to look at it. Yeah. It's a, it's weird. It's a quality, it's a quality problem, but, uh, I think glossing over, you know, those negative comments as they come up as a skill and, and even banning people if necessary, you know, if they're especially nasty, um, cool. Well, listen, um, as far as anything you've got coming, you know, if you if you've got an event or or um, something you really want shared, please let me know. I'm happy to to drop a mention of it on the show and on my um, Facebook page. I just followed you both personally and via my Facebook page, by the way, the Skills with Phil, which is um, Facebook.com/slash Phil Kometz. Am I pronouncing that right? Um, this K is silent, but so, so, sometimes I pronounce the K because it's just easier for people to understand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, as far as how it's normally pronounced, it's, the K is silent. Um, yes, exactly. Cool. I'm glad I asked. Um, yeah, so it's it's uh, facebook.com slash P-H-I-L-K-M-E-T-Z. And, um, and any, is that the best place for people to follow you? Or is there, uh, do you prefer Twitter or Instagram? Uh, so definitely my two favorites are obviously YouTube, but Instagram is my favorite social media. Um, especially Instagram stories. Okay. And that's at Phil Metz? Yep. And if you uh, okay. search for Skills with Phil on Instagram, you should be able to find uh, my account as well. Spectacular. Okay. Uh, thanks again. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you. It's been a lot of fun. I, I love doing podcasts. It's uh, Thanks to Phil for sharing his story. I've included links to his YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram accounts in show notes, where you'll find tons of awesome links related to this episode, located at mtbjumper.com slash philmetz. That's P-H-I-L-K-M-E-T-Z. 
whether you're using the native iPhone podcast app or any Apple or Android podcatcher, I like Podcast Republic. Show notes are right there on your device. Head over to facebook.com slash mtbjumperpodcast. Mash on that like button. Share an episode or two. You'll find all of the episodes listed there. Also, hit that like button. And if you enjoy the show, give me five stars in Facebook reviews. That would be really helpful. On Instagram, I'm at mtbjumperpodcast. Or head over to mtbjumper.com and drop me an email address to get in on giveaways. That's right. I'm going to give away stickers, parts, t-shirts, all that coming right up. All right, folks, thanks for listening. Another fun, informative, insightful episode is on the way. See you then. In the meantime, make time to ride that bike. Thank you.